Hi friends, this is Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to the Unchained Gospel Podcast, where we let the lion out of its cage in order to set the captives free from theirs. Over the course of the next seven episodes, we will be going verse by verse through the book of Colossians. So we left off in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul is describing to the Colossian church how we should set our minds on the things above, and we should not be concerning ourselves with the effects that this world can have on our life. We should not be looking at our present circumstances and allowing those to cloud the truth of where we are seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ and the truth of who we are because of what Jesus has done. And he's, he listed a number of things that he said, we should put these things off. We shouldn't be partaking in these things anymore because they don't reflect the Christ within us out into the world, which is what we're called to do. And he said, these are the things that we should put on. We should be humble and compassionate and loving one another. Just to, to step back a little bit, because we kind of ended mid-thought last week. It says in verse 12, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, another uh, translation says, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Sorry, I'm getting rid of my gum here. Um, so when we pick up tonight in verse 15, he says, And let the peace of Christ, the peace of God, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So this is a long list of things that Paul is telling us are just representations of Christ. And we've been called as his ambassadors to a lost world to give the message of reconciliation, to call the world back to, to God. And uh, it says, let the peace of Christ rule. That word rule is the idea of arbitration. When you have a judge who has two parties on one side or the other, and the judge is called to arbitrate between them and to come up with a ruling. Uh, the idea of a referee or an umpire is what's pictured here. So it's saying, let the peace of Christ that dwells in you. It's that Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Um, those things are in us. God made, uh, Christ made peace with us and God, but he also calls us to live at peace with those around us and not to have hostility towards people who don't think the same way we think or even people that are Christians that, that get on our nerves, uh, believe it or not. For some reason, like, we have a lot of grace for unbelievers sometimes, but not for our fellow Christians. We're like, really, 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 we're like, what are you doing? How are you walking? How are you dealing with God? We start to get really on top of people that way, but we don't offer them the same courtesy, love, and forgiveness that Christ offers us on a daily basis. Um, so he's just, he's, in, he's admonishing, he's encouraging the church, saying, if you want to be like Christ, this is how Christ sees us. So we should see the saints the way Christ sees us, which is flawless, believe it or not. So when somebody messes with you or does something wrong, we're called to forgive them, just as Christ did. We, we looked at that last week, how he was on the cross being crucified, and he was able to forgive the ones that were crucifying him. 
They weren't apologizing to him, saying, sorry, we're doing this. He was asking for, their, for, for God to forgive them because, in a sense, they were helping God to work out his plan of redemption by crucifying Jesus. And we, we forget that sometimes. We're like, man, those stupid soldiers, how could they do that to Jesus? But God was actually using them, even in their sin, to save our souls, which is crazy. So I think that a lot of that has to do with why Jesus said, forgive them. Because God was somehow using that evil and wickedness, just like he does today, uses the wickedness and evil around the world and somehow is able to, to move it and orchestrate it for his glory and, and our good most of the time. Uh, we might not see it right away in our lives, but it's working out a far greater uh, plan in our lives. So when he says, let this peace rule over you and be thankful. Thankfulness is something that we often throw out. We're only thankful when the stuff that happens in our lives is really good. And even then we forget to thank God for it. We're like, it's about time. I had this coming to me. You know, like I worked and worked and worked and I finally got the reward. And we're like, we forget to say, oh, thanks God for this blessing. Thank you. But we know in in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says that this is the will of God, that you will be thankful in all circumstances. That's the will of God. Not for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. Regardless of what it may appear on the outside, we're called to be thankful. And the only way we can do that is by going back to the beginning of the chapter when Paul said, set your mind on things above where Christ is, where he sat down at the right hand of the Father because he already completed the work on the cross. There's nothing more that needs to be done to save us from hell. He's done all of that. And when we see ourselves as a new creation... Then we're able to say, thank you, Lord. Yeah, I got laid off today, but thank you, Lord, that I am seated with you. I am a co-heir with Christ of all of the riches of heaven. Am I saying that I can do that? No, I don't do that. I, my whole life is peachy. And then one thing goes bleep, on the radar and I go, ah, God, why thou smiteth me? Right? And we get so easily thrown off our course. And we're like, man, this always happens to me. Just when I thought things were going well, curveball, wrecking ball, the end. My life is ruined. It's awful. Thanks a lot, God. That's not the kind of thankfulness I'm talking about. That's got a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of bite to it. But the cool thing is, is that, as we said before, God's not intimidated by our doubt or our anger towards him. One thing that I, I you know, I've, as I've studied the scriptures, I, I see there are plenty of, of examples in the Psalms in Lamentations, where God basically says, and in and, and Job, God is actually allowing his people to pound their fists on his chest and say, why, God, why? And God's not like, oh, I don't know, they don't believe in me anymore. God's like, I know. If we don't feel comfortable going to God in, our, in the dark times, then we're never going to go to him in the good times. We're going to ignore him completely because oftentimes it's those dark times that draw us to God so if we say oh God and we just forget about him because things are going rough and we think God's given us a crappy hand for lack of a better term uh, then how are we going to be thankful in all circumstances there's no way we can do it so it's important for us to keep our perspective fresh and and where it belongs in heaven with Christ Um, in verse 16 he kind of gives us the tool on how we can do that it's already been given to us, but he, he shines a light on it, as it were. Verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, again, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. If you recall in John chapter 1, it says that the, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And as it moves on in the chapter, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it means he tabernacled. He set up his home among mankind. And Jesus goes on in John chapter 17 and says, or John chapter 14, I apologize. And he says that the Father and I are going to come and make our homes with you, meaning believers. And Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to come and indwell us. So the word of Christ is dwelling in us the moment we believe, the moment we place our faith in Jesus because his spirit comes in. And he, and he says, if I don't go away, when he's still with his disciples, I can't send the comforter to you. And he will teach you and, and guide you into the thi- and, all the thi- and remind you of all the things that I have said. That's the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. But oftentimes we can silence the word of God in our own lives for something else. Or we can take up the the territory that's intended for God in our hearts gets clouded by idols or by distractions or by the circumstances that we often think are a result of God not caring about us or God forgetting about us or losing track of us. What's interesting, he says, let the the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It kind of parallels what uh, Paul says in Ephesians when he says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit and letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and the idea there is it's flourishing, right? Nice richness, you think of that. The idea that it then springs into worship of God. It says that the wisdom, uh, I'm sorry, the teaching and admonishing of one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So being filled with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the word of God bring spontaneous worship to God. Sometimes as Christians, we can choose to have and or, I'm sorry, either or, instead of both and when it comes to the Spirit and the Word. We want a more spiritual experience. So we lay aside the Bible and just go nuts. And we want the Spirit to just take control and there's no order. There's nothing grounding our experience. There are other people who are like this. And the Spirit of God is like, hey, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get through to you. He's knocking on our hearts and our minds saying, this is black and white on a page unless you let me, as the Spirit of God, teach you this. Move in your life. Allow you to apply this and live it out in the world. So we can't be either or. It has to be both and. And it's very important that we are centered on this because you know you can go to any church and you can go to any Christian and it's very easy to slip to one side or the other where it's all spirit no word all word no spirit and there's dead churches and there are crazy churches we're neither we're not a church we're just gathering here as Christians but it's important that we have the word dwelling in us and we're feeding on the word of God it's like our daily meal if we come to church on Sunday for an hour and that's all we do that's essentially saying I'm going to eat one meal a week And that's it. And I'm not going to do anything else with it. We're not allowing the word to take root. Um, And there's a cool quote. uh, Well, Chuck Smith says, um, 
No, not Chuck Smith. J. Edwin Orr has a quote. It talks about how, how someone's heart is revived and how revival works. He says, it's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. That is how revival happens. It's not just, just the Word, just the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God using the Word of God to teach people who they are and who God is and how we should live that affects our lives, which ultimately allows us to radiate the glory of God to the lost world and to draw people back to God, to have the right relationship with Him that all were intended to have. If we think about it this way, it says, you can't have the Spirit without the Word, and you can't have the Word without the Spirit. It doesn't They are working together. And if you need proof of that, Ephesians 6.17 says, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So, you can't expect the Spirit to have effect in your life unless you are allowing the Word to speak to you. At the same time, the Word cannot work in your life unless you allow the Spirit to speak to you. So it's just, it's really interesting how God, He's, you know, we have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, which is Jesus Christ, and the Father, and they somehow, they work codependently, independently, and uniformly. Like, there's all these cool aspects to it, and we don't have time to get into all the, the nitty-gritty of that. But um, as we move on, He says, whatever you do, in verse 17, in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. It's really interesting here because he doesn't say in whatever Christian activity you do, do it for the glory of God. He says in whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And one one final thing I want to say about worship, about how the word of God and the spirit of God work to bring worship to its proper place. I read a quote online and I thought it was very appropriate because... Oftentimes we allow our worship of God to be dictated by the radio or by what the world is doing. And you walk into a church and you go, well, this isn't, this doesn't seem like it's God being worshipped. It seems like man's being worshipped here. You know, A.W. Tozer says, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. And that's, worship is not for us to get something. And oftentimes we go to a church because the worship's really happening and the guitar player is really good, and the drums are really tight, and the vocalists are just running trills and, and going crazy, which is all a glorifying act of God when it's in, in its proper context. But if we're getting the tinglys because the music is good, then we're worshiping for what we get out of it, not for the, the elevation of God. Okay, And I, I'm a musician, so I appreciate music a lot, and it's a real struggle to decipher between what the Spirit's doing versus, man, this is just a great time to repeat the chorus because it sounds good that way. It's very hard, and I struggle with it a lot. And all, that's I stepped out of doing worship for years because I was playing music, and I could not, I could not separate the two. I could not separate the secular from the spiritual, as it were. And I said, okay, God, you gave me a voice, you gave me a guitar, you gave, I'm going to use these. I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll get paid to play music, and I'll do things. But when it comes to church, I'm just going to sit in the audience and sing along with the person up there because that's who you want to be up there. Because I could not, I couldn't sanctify what I, how I was playing music in a worship setting. Um, but thankfully, God worked some of those things out. And he said, I've given you gifts to edify the church, not to edify yourself. So even if you don't want to lead worship, too bad. I've called you to do it. And so pretty much every time I get up and lead, I go, <sighs> gotta go do it again no i'm just kidding i don't have that attitude but 
it is kind of a struggle in that it becomes an act of serving God. It's not serving Jeff because if I was going to serve me, I would just play whatever songs I wanted to, pick all the right keys that make me comfortable, you know, all that stuff. It's, a, it's an act of worship and service to God by, by allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us and bear fruit in our lives. And that's why he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So even if it's something that you are called to do that you don't like to do, do it for Jesus. And that's why I wanted to tie that together because that's a little personal example of, from my own life. Giving thanks to God. That's the third time we read about thankfulness. No one ever preaches a sermon on thankfulness. Did you realize that? Maybe they do, but I think we need it a lot more because gratitude really puts our hearts and minds in the proper perspective when we realize, instead of treating God as a what have you done for me lately entity, we are constantly reminding ourselves of what he has done for us and what he has laid up for us in heaven. That's what this whole chapter has been about. So now we're going to transfer into the household and thankfully my wife and kids are not here to call me a hypocrite, but uh, I said to my wife Jamie on the way out, I can't, I'm just going to skip over the verse that says, fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, or do not provoke your children, because I have a, a good knack for that, and it's, it's reciprocal, it's not just me, obviously, my kids can provoke me to wrath, and I can provoke them to wrath very quickly, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's the truth, because there's enough flesh in all of us that is at war, trying to get us to uh, to subjugate ourselves to the, the old man as opposed to the new man. But we'll jump in here uh, as we get ready to wrap up. He shifts and he says, okay, we've got our heads around who Christ is, who we are in Christ. Now, how do we live among other people, other Christians, other non-believers, and in our own homes where nobody else sees, which is the biggest challenge. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, some manuscripts say submit to your own husbands because that's what it says in Ephesians, which it's, that's, the, that's the intent here. But if your translation says own husbands, mine doesn't say own husbands, but basically just because that was borrowed from Ephesians and not in the original manuscripts, whatever, nonsense. But the gist is Luke's wife doesn't have to submit to me because I happen to be a husband of somebody else. Does that make sense? You submit to the husband that God has brought into your life. Which, ladies, is all the more important that you don't just say, man, I need a man. And you just find a guy who has a pulse and isn't completely repulsive and you marry him. Because God has called, and it's nothing about inferiority here. It's not that women are less in God's eyes because we see in Galatians, he says, there's no longer male or female in Christ. Everyone's on equal footing at the cross. Jesus revealed to himself after he was raised from the dead to a woman first. Probably because, I don't know, the men will be like, ah, I don't know. No, I don't believe it. Um, but so when we go into this, it's not a yes. I'm so glad this guy believes that men are first and women are second. That's not what we're talking about here. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians says that as unto the Lord, knowing that Christ is the head of the church just as the husband is the head of the wife. And the, the idea submit here has to do with military terms falling in rank. So you have generals and you have corporals and you have privates and all that. 
No one person is better. They've been given that order, and that's the order of authority that's been placed upon them. The private doesn't go home and say, I'm less of a human being than that person is because they are over me. I often, I struggle. That's why I work for myself now because I struggle with authority. I struggle big time submitting to authority. And that's a, that's a flaw in my own life. I'm just, this is my confessional booth here. Um, so I work for myself now, which I can be a hard boss myself because if I don't produce the way I think I should, I beat myself up about it because I have a family and stuff to provide for. But that's neither here nor there. The idea of coming underneath somebody else's authority, it really grates on us because we are independent people. At least we'd like to pride ourselves in being that way. So I've, I've never been a wife. And ladies, I don't know what it's like. But I do know that the husband, as a Christian, is called the bride of Christ. And if Christ is the head of the church, then the husband needs to submit to Christ the way that he expects his wife to submit to him. So if you're a husband and you're like, yeah, my wife needs to submit to me, well, you better be submitting to Christ the way you expect your wife to submit to you because it's not going to work that way. And your wife, even more so, is not going to submit to you if you're not submitted to Christ. It's very important that we understand the order of things and, and God's view on them. Husbands, love your wives. Now, Colossians is a very short, abbreviated version of this. It's not, it doesn't get into the depths of the mystery of God of Christ and the church and all these things. So I encourage you to read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 on your own because he really gets into the depth of what, what it means to submit, what it means to respect, what it means to love as Christ loved the church. And what did Jesus Christ do? He says he died for the church because he loved it so much so that he could present his bride back to himself faultless, washing with the water of the word sanctifying a pure and spotless bride for himself. So it's very encouraging here. And he says, and do not be harsh with them. Woman, make me some stew. You know, like that, that just doesn't fly. Maybe it did in the, the, the 50s or something, but it was not okay. It's not okay. So guys, don't do that. I'm trying to keep it some levity in it because I'm uncomfortable teaching this. Because I am a, I never boss my wife around. Um, you know, but I also am guilty of not loving her the way that I should. So, you know, I can't have it both ways. Children, obey your parents in everything. Everybody here is a child of somebody, right? Whether living or dead. And we're called to obey our parents. Now, we don't obey them under the iron fist or whatever that we had when we were little, where it was like, because I said so. Like, that doesn't really fly when you're a 31-year-old man and my mom says to me, because I said so. I'll be like, all right, um, hold that thought. I'm going to go pay my mortgage and see my wife and my children. I'll get back to you on that whole because I said so. You know, it doesn't really work that way. But children, I think there's like, I forget how many, eight verses or four verses in the Bible that speak specifically to children. And every time it's about obeying. And I'm very quick to remind my kids about that. Right? Parents, anybody? Eh, not that many here. But we love those verses, right? The Bible says you're to obey me. God is not pleased with you because you're disobeying. And I've said those words that sadly because when you're not submitting to the authority of Christ in your life, it's amazing what can come out of your mouth. It's amazing the things that you can find yourself saying. 
That's why he quickly says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I said to Jamie, I was like, I can't talk about this. Now, I'm not verbally abusive. I'm not, I'm not confessing this long pattern of beating my kids down with my tongue. That's not what I'm saying. But who am I to know what tone in my voice or look in my eye has scarred my child for the rest of their lives? I don't know that. I can't see into the future to know because there are things that people have said to me in passing as a child and up till now. And they weren't even malicious in their intent. But it cut me so deep that those scars remain today. Now, thankfully, they're redeemed and washed in the blood of Jesus. I'm not saying that I live under this burden of them. But I still remember those things. I'm like, I remember that one person said this to me. So it's very important that fathers... I read somebody say, we can't hold our children to a higher standard than we hold ourselves when we go to our father and say, God, I can't believe I screwed up again. You forgive me, right? Please? Unconditional love, right? That's what he's talking about here. It's about the Christ. It's Christ, husband, wife, child. It works up. It's an organizational chart that goes up, but it goes down too. And we can't expect the person beneath us in the order to behave in any different way than we ourselves are behaving to the person above us. So that's the importance of what we say. You know, like we talk about leaders and bosses. And, and we're going to get into that as we finish here. I saw a cool picture where there's these, uh, these men are pulling a big throne. And it's like slave labor. And there's a guy sitting on the throne pointing like this. And it says, this is a boss. And in the next picture, it has a guy pointing, leading the men, pulling the empty throne. And it says, this is a leader. That's what God calls us to be men in our homes. Not to sit up and say, this is the position that God gave me. So honor it, please. Because guess what? If you're the leader and something goes wrong, who are they going to blame? The followers? No. It's a greater, not only is it a greater authority, it's a greater responsibility that's given to us. Uncle Ben said that, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Spider-Man. Anyway. <laughs> um, that was for the young kids here that know comic books. Anyway. Um, one verse I really like, and I think it's important. Oh, well, let me read the rest here, talking about bond servants. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And you're like, well, I'm not a slave, and slavery is wrong, so I can ignore this. The idea of a bond servant here is an indentured servant, someone who is hired and paid. And we talked about this. We've talked about this in the past, but it's the idea of someone, a bond servant, was someone who had the opportunity to go free but decided because his life was better in the care of his master, he was going to stay. It talks about this in Levitic, uh, Exodus or Leviticus. It talks about it in Deuteronomy where it says, I love my master. If I go out into the world, I have nothing. If I stay with my master, I have everything. And they would take the servant and nail his ear to the doorway of the house so that when people would walk by, they would see this guy giving up his rights essentially and choosing to stay with the master that he loved. And then he would wear an earring for the rest of his life as a symbol of being a bondservant. Now, unfortunately, people use the Bible to justify horrible things in the name of slavery, which was wrong. 
But the bond servantship that this is what, what this is talking about is more in our day we would think of a hired person, uh, an employee-employer relationship. It's not exactly, you know, it, it's a different context and stuff, but when you think about it this way, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. No. Nobody does that, right? God put that in there for the weird 10%. Man, I'm so glad that God put this in here. Otherwise, I would be pretty happy about myself. I would be working and I'd be like, 40-hour week, more like 33, when I count all the long bathroom breaks or the long lunches that I took or the time I spent on YouTube or whatever, or at the water cooler talking about my weekend, you know. They know I do good work. What would they do if I left, huh? Those are the attitudes that people have. And it's been seen as justified anymore. And I've done that. One, another one of the reasons I went to be employed for myself was that I felt guilty about the way I had worked for other people. And I said, I don't want anybody to be losing money because of my lack of effort. So now I'm going to live and die by my own effort, essentially. Which is scary, and you can talk about me. Talk to me later about that. Um, for, but any of you that are self-employed, you know what that's like. Don't do things just to please people when they're walking by. I saw a commercial today while watching the Eagles game that was really funny, and it was like these. It's supposed to be like in the dark ages, and there was these guys there, and they had this like guy chained to a wall. And the, the boss walked in, and he's like, are you getting the information out of them? And they're like, yeah, 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 we were. And he was holding, like, this paddle that had, like, spikes on it. And they were going to, like, whip the guy with it. And as soon as the, guy, the boss leaves, they tip the guy over, and he becomes, like, a ping-pong net. And he's just laying across the table. And he's like, who, is, who served last? And so they start playing ping-pong over the guy. And the guy's, like, totally fine with it. So, and it says, you always pretend to work when your boss is around, right? And that was the whole idea of the commercial. I don't even know what the product was, because commercials are that ineffective anymore but um we all pretend to work a little bit harder like you hear the boss coming like jesus is saying i mean paul's saying don't do that you should be working the same way whether anybody's there seeing it or whether there's 40 people watching you through a terrarium because you're on display it should be the same but with sincerity of heart fearing the lord whatever you do work heartily as for the lord and not for men don't work to get a raise, which is really what everybody tells you to do. But essentially, Paul's saying, work because God gave you a job, and you should be thankful for the things that you have, and honor God. And God will take care of raise or no raise, or promotion or no promotion. It's so hard. I'm, I'm talking to you as somebody who has been there, okay, working and working and working, and being told, sorry, it's not in the budget, you know? Working and working, and then finally saying, giving up and throwing your hands up and saying, I'm not going to bust my butt anymore because I don't see the reward. Right? This is real stuff here, right? I'm not talking like as though this doesn't happen, right? The Bible is very, very, very keen on hitting us right where we are. You know, a lot of times people try to say it's archaic and it's not really relatable in this day and age. This is pretty relatable. I don't know, maybe just me. Maybe God's just working on me right now. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Don't worry about the raise. Think about the inheritance of eternity with him. He's already given us the down payment. If you're looking for that bonus, he's given it to us by his Holy Spirit, says Ephesians. 
So, man, it's challenging when you read it in the Bible because there's no getting around it. You can't say, oh, that's just somebody's opinion. But essentially, that's what he's calling people to do. But don't worry, he doesn't leave masters off the hook. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's who we're serving when we work, when we do anything, when we submit to our husbands, when we love our wives, when we're kind to our children and we encourage them rather than discourage them, when children obey your parents, you're doing it to Jesus Christ. He said, even as, you know, when you give a cup of cold water in my name, when you clothe the sick and the hurting and you, you visit those in prison, you're doing it to me. Same goes for these nice spiritual things about obedience and submission and love and respect. It's doing it to Christ. It's appealing to the Christ within all of us. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. God doesn't say, you gave 80% at your job, but you were justified in doing that because your boss is an idiot. God doesn't say, well, I'm on your side or on that guy's side in this. God is for justice, period. So do your work as though it's to the Lord. And then we're, we do ma- verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So there's always a, a reciprocity, a law of reciprocity here. It's not blindly work for your masters and they can do whatever they want and Jesus is telling you to do it and you're fine. There's always an admonishment for the other party too. Treat your servants fairly. Because you are a servant to Christ, even though you're a master on earth. And if anybody has, you know, I mean, I have all the reasons why I shouldn't do these things. But I'll just read a a final verse for you. Well, actually, two final verses for you. I apologize. 1 Corinthians 7, 22. It says this. For he who has called, who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. We were a slave to sin and unrighteousness. When we get saved, we become a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ and to righteousness. It's not Jesus whipping us into submission and saying, come on, push that cart harder. Essentially, we're chained to Jesus, in my opinion, so that when we're walking along the edge of the cliff and we stumble and fall off of it, guess what? We're chained to Jesus and he's holding us. He's our anchor. It's not like, come on, you punk. I'm your master. You're my slave. It's not like that. It's the idea of if I go out in the world free, I'm lost. I have nothing. If I stay here with the master who loves me and gives me everything that I need, I am content. And that's what I'm doing. I'm a bond servant. And the cool thing is that Jesus doesn't ask us to behave in any way that he didn't first behave himself while he was in the human suit, as it were. And I'll close with this verse. Mark 10, verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here's where the the crux of the statement comes. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. No servant is greater than his master. And as we've looked at it, Jesus came and became a servant, even though he didn't need to. He had all authority and rule, and he submitted himself. So we are called to submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. Even the governing authorities, which that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> but there's Bible verses in here that tell us that we need to be respectful and submit to them as well. As to God. Not the people, not the entity. But to God as the sovereign authority over all things.